0: This is the My Dark Path podcast. As a kid, I was fascinated by the space age, the people and technologies, the disasters and triumphs. But as I grew older, I realized that the aircraft and spacecraft we can think of today were actually the result of an incredible Darwinian process that killed most concepts before they left a drawing board, entered a wind tunnel, or were built into a prototype. Even those that managed to advance into production were winnowed further through the invisible hand of commercial competition or violent survival of the fittest during war. For every plane or spaceship we know by name, there are literally dozens of failures. So, when reading World War II history, I wasn't surprised when I came across a brief reference to something I hadn't heard of before, the America rocket. This was a part of Nazi Germany's far-reaching weapons program designed to bring the war to American shores, but fortunately failed. Further reading opened a window to the world of Panamunda, the tiny town on the coast of the Baltic Sea that became the epicenter of Germany's rocketry ambitions during World War II. To attempt to understand Penemunda is to uncover a history of mad ambitions, brilliant scientists and engineering breakthroughs, coupled with an astonishing disdain for freedom and innocent human life. This complex history inspired my first novel, *Seen by Moonlight, and drove me to visit the places and uncover the people behind this extraordinary period. So after planning a research trip for more than a year, I almost didn't make it to Penamunda. After a week of late dinner meetings at a conference elsewhere in Europe, my work responsibilities were finally complete. I had a weekend free for my research. So my flight landed in Berlin on an autumn Saturday evening and I stumbled out of the Tegel Airport well past sunset. Google Maps told me it was a simple four hour drive to the coast of the Baltic Sea. But arrival times are not an exact science, especially when you're a newbie driving on the German Autobahn. I'd traveled before on this world-famous freeway without speed limits, but only as a passenger. I took heart when I first learned that my rental car was a Mercedes. But my optimism was quickly tempered when I learned it was just a little economy model, not the powerful vehicle that I envisioned would make me the instant master of the Autobahn. Within minutes, it was very clear I was out of my depth. I was a first-time autobahn driver in an underpowered car at midnight. The autobahn is as different as you can imagine. Other cars whipped by so rapidly, it felt like I was barely moving, even at 130 kilometers or about 80 miles per hour. Pendemunda turned out to be an even bigger surprise. The town sits at the end of a strip of land along a natural bay that empties into the Baltic Sea. You pass through a beautiful but remote patchwork of farmland and national parks and you can feel yourself getting further and further away from the energy of German cities. The whole town is less than 10 square miles. The last census puts the population at just 345 people. There are remote vacation homes here, a few docks for small boats, a ferry service that will take you to some of the villages and towns around the bay. But as charming as all that sounds, it's not why I was here. I pulled into an empty parking lot about 3 a.m. As the last potential motel was at least an hour behind me, my plan was to sleep in the car, thereby maximizing the time I'd have the next day to explore. So, still in my suit, foolishly, I might add, the car engine running to keep me warm, I folded up my jacket into a makeshift pillow and tried to sleep on the car seat. I was streaming the broadcast of a college football game being played back in America, a little sound of home keeping me company in the dark. And as the sun started to rise a few hours later, I saw it, the largest remnant of the improbable, incredible role that this little town played in the history of the 20th century. The Pendemunde Power Plant, now, the Pendemunde Historical Technical Museum. But it's a museum surrounded by the remnants of a state-of-the-art aerospace campus, grim art pieces that depict cruelty and death. Old train tracks still run through the compound. There are concrete steps and a loading ramp waiting for a factory that was never completed. Wooden stakes in the ground were once a part of the foundation of a barracks at a labor camp. An old church in the shape of an octagon dates back to 1876 and sits by a cemetery where, after the war, an unmarked mass grave was discovered. Inside the museum are derelict machines in vast industrial chambers befitting its prior life as a power plant that provided the energy for a facility the likes of which had never been seen on earth. The Pendemunde Army Research Center worked in collaboration with Pendemunde West, an airfield that served as a test site in World War II for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. This is where the V-1 flying bomb and the V-2 rocket were developed and tested. These were weapons that announced the future of warfare with a fiery roar. Models of those two weapons still sit on the museum grounds today. This is where a secretive group of scientists discovered ways to take the destructive force of war even higher into the skies than it ever had before, with visions of taking it even beyond the atmosphere. This is even where, believe it or not, a major part of the American space program was born. The other structure that remained largely intact after the war was an observation bunker where military leaders, engineers, and ground crews could safely observe tests and launches. This building is squat, built of thick concrete with only tiny observation ports designed to withstand the explosive failures that were inevitable given Penemunde's mission. In this episode, we're going to talk about the scientific breakthroughs, and we're going to talk about how the changing fortunes of war and drastic, desperate choices on both sides collided here and inspired a race against time between the Nazis and allies. But we're also going to talk about the dead. Pendemunda is a place that few would consider a battlefield, but it is a place of mass casualties, Thousands died here due to the war and we can't erase or forget their presence. What they call a museum is just as much a monument and perhaps the quiet of the surroundings is appropriate. Even 75 years later, I could still feel the heavy presence of the innocent lives lost in this place. Hi. My name's M.F. Thomas. I'm an author and a lifelong fan of strange stories from the dark corners of the world. Growing up, I was enthralled by any hint of exciting, forbidden knowledge that waited behind the names and dates we learned in school. And these days, as I travel the world, there's nothing I enjoy more than to get off the traditional tourist map and find a place or story that's been overlooked, dismissed, or ignored. This is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. What's unique? I'm combining personal on-location research with insights from experts, researchers, and historians. So every episode will intrigue, excite, and perhaps send a shiver down your spine. So if you geek out over these topics, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. To see content related to every episode, visit MyDarkPath.com. When you're there, register for the newsletter and you'll be entered for frequent drawings for a unique book or other interesting materials. Also, you can learn more about the Explorers Society. This is a subscription program that offers exclusive episodes, unique and curious items, plus access to amazing live events. And lastly, thanks for listening. I know you have more choices than ever about where to spend your time. I'm grateful that you've chosen to spend time here with me, walking the dark paths of the world together. Let's get started with Episode 2, Pendemunde. Part 1. The end of the First World War saw Germany facing severe sanctions for its aggression. The Treaty of Versailles barred them from building any new tanks, military aircraft, and chemical weapons. They weren't completely disarmed, but they couldn't restock themselves in the traditional way either. It also restricted the size of their navy, leaving them no means to project power with their existing technology. But there was one important area of military technology that was overlooked in the treaty, one which had so little importance or history of being effective in battle that there was no legal obstacle against Germany pursuing it. This technology was rockets. Hermann Oberth had been dreaming of rockets since he was a child. He religiously read the science fiction novels of Jules Verne like From the Earth to the Moon and Around the Moon. He built his first working model rocket for a school project when he was only 14. This was in 1908. He studied medicine before the outbreak of the First World War, where he was drafted into the infantry of the Imperial German Army. After the war, he committed to studying physics, writing his doctoral dissertation on rocket science. The university rejected his dissertation, calling it utopian. Rather than revise it or prepare a new one, Oberth published it himself, deciding he'd rather go without the title of doctor than reject his own ideas. While other minds of his caliber were holding prestigious university posts, Oberth was teaching at a high school in Romania. But his book, The Rocket Into Planetary Space, inspired a following across Europe. Scientists, explorers, and rocket enthusiasts formed a group called the Space Flight Society that revered his ideas as pointing the way to the future. One member of the society, a Slovene engineer named Herman Potosnik, published a radically visionary book called The Problem of Space Travel. This was in 1928, and Potosnik created, with over 100 illustrations, the first detailed design for a theoretically working space station. It contained so many ideas that had never before been imagined that when it was published in America, it was in a science fiction magazine. You might even recognize Herman Potosnik's vision for a wheel-shaped space station. Stanley Kubrick used the idea in the film 2001, A Space Odyssey. But speaking of film, let's go back to 1928 when Herman Oberth is hired to work on a very special project, a silent film, to be directed by the legendary Fritz Lang. It's a romantic sci-fi adventure called Frau im The Woman in the Moon. Oberth designs a model spaceship for the film and launches a working rocket as a publicity event. The film is a sensation introducing a global audience for the first time A visual representation of a multi-stage rocket. For the German public, rocketry carried the promise of adventure and of progress. Amid the decadence of the Weimar Republic and a looming global depression, here was a field where Germany was the unquestioned leader of the world. Oberth was gaining more prestige and with it, more resources to continue developing rocket motors. By 1930, he had a protégé from the Space Flight Society working for him, an 18-year-old musical prodigy who was already telling people he intended to travel to the moon someday. This was Werner von Braun, who plays a pivotal role in our unfolding story of Penemunda. Part 2 Henne didn't exist before the war. The land belonged to a town called Wolgast until 1936 when the Nazi air ministry paid 750,000 Reichmarks for it. It had already been discovered that rockets could be launched from underwater, but having a launch site near the water might make it more difficult for foreign spies to recover tested rockets. So this bay of the Baltic Sea made for an ideal location. To protect the shore from high tides, they built a dike four kilometers long, which created an artificial lake. A residential settlement was built to house scientists and staff. It included a school, a store, and restaurants. Heating pipes snaked above and below ground across the town, bringing modern comfort during cold winters. And scattered across the complex, there were three dozen concrete archways. They provided shelter in case you couldn't get to a bunker quickly enough during an air raid. When the Army Research Center came online in 1937, Dr. Werner von Braun, just 25 years of age, was already in charge. The Nazi government had taken an early interest in von Braun. His dissertation on liquid rocket propellant was classified by the German army, with only a small portion of it publicly released to justify his doctorate. The facility at Pennemunde was constructed to focus on the aggregate rockets, designs he had been working on since he was 21. At this new facility, he would have all the resources he would need to build and test his work on a scale that he couldn't have imagined before. He would also have the labor to take his concepts off the drawing board. The Nazis were providing a ready supply. The first known concentration camp in Nazi Germany opened just five weeks after Hitler became chancellor in 1933. Mass arrests of communists, anarchists, and seditious leftists filled the camps, and the Nazis granted themselves the legal authority to detain people indefinitely, even if they were never convicted of anything. As Hitler's followers consolidated power, anyone viewed as resisting them could be imprisoned, including members of rival political parties and the heads of trade unions, all in the name of security and law and order. As the population of the camps grew, the Nazis quickly found a use for them as slave labor. Soon. Prisoners were building their own prisons, manufacturing the weapons that guarded them, and restoring the German military in new and terrible strength. Slave labor built Pendemünde, and slave labor built the thousands of rockets based on von Braun's designs. It was SS General Hans Klammer, the engineer who designed Auschwitz, who suggested using slaves for this task. In addition to all the facilities I've already described, Penemunda also had its own crematorium to dispose of those who'd been worked to death. The seeds of the Cold War between America and the Soviet Union were already planted well before the conclusion of the Second World War. The first front of this new conflict arguably had to do with what happened to Germany's scientists. Through cajoling, blackmailing, and sometimes the outright kidnapping, at least on the part of the Soviets... The top minds of the Third Reich were divided among the two sides. In the United States, the intelligence community called this Operation Paperclip. In 1946, the Soviet Army, still occupying part of Germany, took over 2,000 specialists and their families out of the country at gunpoint. They even took much of the equipment from Penemunda and other sites that we'll discuss in future episodes. America, though, got von Braun and many of his senior partners. When they went to work for NASA, von Braun said that he had never had any interest in politics, that he had only joined the Nazi party and the SS out of bureaucratic necessity, and that his research was solely about his dream to take humankind to outer space. Now, anything he said to this effect should be heard in the context of the seven years he spent in charge of a facility with its own crematorium, For its dead workers, the aggregate rocket series that von Braun had been working on had twelve different designs, designated A1 through A12. Their progression tells a story of staggering ambition over just a few years of work. The A1 rocket, designed in 1933, stood under five feet tall and weighed little over 300 pounds. While its engine test-fired successfully, its one attempt at flight exploded on the launch pad. And no design past the A5 was ever built into a prototype. We'll talk about A6 through A12 in a bit, but we're going to focus now on the pinnacle of the technological achievement of Penemunda, the breakthrough that caught the attention of the Allies, forced an excruciating choice on the British, and inspired Adolf Hitler to make a fateful change in the Nazi war strategy. The most successful design in the aggregate series was A4, or, as it was called once it was put into military use, the V-2 rocket. The V-2 in English stands for Retribution Weapon. Part 3 World War II changed the definition of battlefields. While soldiers and tanks might be fighting hundreds of miles from home, an airborne bomber could bring the war down on your rooftop with sudden and lethal force. Years before the outbreak of the war, as British military leaders guessed at Hitler's ambitions, there were studies and plans drawn up for how to defend against bombing raids on London. The Nazis targeted civilians deliberately in Poland in 1939, and their threat to level the city of Rotterdam with bombers already in the air is what finally persuaded the Dutch to surrender. Then, on the 24th of August, 1940, Luftwaffe bombers struck civilian areas of London for the first time. It's not known if the immediate British response was an accident or carried out under orders, but the next day, the British Royal Air Force bombed Berlin for the first time. Two weeks later, Hitler gave a public speech in which he declared, quote, this is a game at which two can play. When they declare they will attack our cities in great measure, we will eradicate their cities. The hour will come when one of us will break, and it will not be National Socialist Germany. End quote. This is what became known as the London Blitz. For months, day and night, from mid-1940 to early 1941, the Luftwaffe targeted British civilians relentlessly and indiscriminately. There was no question about the strategy. It was a belief that the morale of the British could be broken. Hitler considered the British to be a, quote, Germanic people. He believed that they would have a latent sympathy for the German cause, assuming that he could apply sufficient pressure. But the result was the exact opposite. The Blitz produced a united population and hardened their resolve. It also forced the rapid development of ingenious advances in air defenses that gradually rendered the Luftwaffe's assaults futile. One of the most fascinating museums I've ever visited in the world is Churchill's War Rooms, the bunkers underground Westminster where he led the British Empire's fight against the Nazi onslaught. The stories of this location and the people who worked there is a future episode of My Dark Path. The German army, meanwhile, was stymied on its eastern front, Before the war, Germany and the Soviet Union had signed a non-aggression pact, a peace agreement between Hitler and Stalin, two of the greatest mass murderers in history. But the Nazis, after months of secret planning, had broken the pact and sent an invasion force of three million soldiers. Even though Hitler had written and spoken for years about, quote, exterminating the communists, Stalin seems to have genuinely not anticipated the Nazis would break the truce. To this day, it's the largest theater of war in human history, producing death and atrocities beyond imagining. It seems to me to be the highest degree of hubris to believe in the promise of peace when someone's behavior demonstrates they want you dead. Now, as this was happening, the RAF was responding to the Blitz by beginning to bomb civilian targets in Germany... The British believed that with the Nazis devoting so much force along their eastern front trying to invade Russia that a blow against their centers of industry could have a major impact, while the Allies worked to muster a large enough force to retake the continent. The RAF could target a single area with hundreds of bombers, overwhelming all German defenses. For example, in a period of less than two hours, the RAF dropped over 2,000 tons of explosives and incendiaries on Cologne on the night of May 30, 1942. This was a town rich in medieval history and many of its core buildings were still made of wood. Cologne burned from one end to the other. Late in the war, the city of Dresden was also firebombed by the RAF. The fire was so out of control, even prisoners of war were forced to perform firefighting duties. The author Kurt Vonnegut was one of them, and he wrote about it in his novel, Slaughterhouse Five. Millions of Germans became homeless refugees, and this at a time when their army needed replenishing. The Luftwaffe could no longer fly at sufficient strength to stage an attack at a level of the original Blitz, but Hitler was determined to avenge his losses, and he believed he needed to strike a dramatic blow against London. This is when he took new interest in the work being done at Pennemunde. There were two vengeance weapons of great promise, the V 1 and V 2. The V 2 was the military name for the A 4, Von Braun's ballistic missile. The V 1 was also developed at Penamunda, but by others, and was not a rocket, but rather a flying bomb, powered by a unique pulse jet engine. By the way, if you visit mydarkpath.com, you can see photos from the amazing exhibits around the Penamunda complex and historical museum. You'll see that the V1 vaguely looks like an insect and the British came to refer to it as the doodlebug because of the distinctive way it moved. Sometimes because of the unforgettable sound it made as it flew, it was also called a buzz bomb. The V2 meanwhile stood tall and vertical with fins and a pointed nose, looking like every pulp science fiction version of a rocket to the moon, and it flew without sound. Both of these weapons with sufficient testing were able to strike the British mainland from Europe without an aircraft. Hitler referred to such a dramatic leap in technology as, quote, a wonder weapon, and he came to believe that such advances would simultaneously restore German morale and bring him ultimate victory over the Allies. He had more than one facility working on these so-called wonder weapons, At another facility known as Trowan, an aerospace engineer named Eugen Sanger worked on an astonishing aircraft he called the Silverbird. It was a bomber which, in Sanger's vision, would be launched off a rocket-propelled monorail past the speed of Mach 17 and actually reach suborbital altitudes, where the pilot could then skip along the upper atmosphere like a stone across a pond, crossing an entire ocean with very little fuel before raining bombs from higher than any air defense system could reach. But Sanger had no test pilots with the skill to even attempt such a death-defying stunt. All the best test pilots were in Penemunda. As a note, we'll cover more of these wonder weapons in future episodes, and I have a trip to Trowan on the books to explore the similarities and differences between it and Penemunda. It was Hermann Göring, the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe and the second most powerful Nazi next to Hitler, who prevented these two facilities from sharing resources. He even prevented the two sites from communicating with each other. Whether this was operational paranoia, a belief that competition would produce faster results, or simple megalomania, Göring constantly manipulated the conditions at these two facilities. And it wasn't just these two sites. He did the same across all the facilities devoted to the quest for these wonder weapons. The atomic bomb was one weapon that they feverishly pursued at multiple research facilities. One of these atomic research programs was led by another scientist who is a household name to this day, Werner Heisenberg. But the institutional rivalry between all these facilities was fully and finally settled by Hitler himself in the middle of 1943. When he watched a film narrated by von Braun that showed the successful liftoff of a V2 rocket, Hitler proclaimed, quote, If we had had these rockets in 1939, we should never have had this war, End quote. He declared Panamunda to be the number one priority in the entire German armaments program. Part 4 Even though not a single V2 had been yet used in battle, the Germans weren't the only ones in awe of its potential. The British had been eavesdropping on high-ranking German prisoners of war, and the surveillance photos had revealed the construction of launch sites in northern France. They needed to decide whether these sites were just a decoy, or if the intelligence was legitimate, pointing to a new technology that could strike all the way across the English Channel. It was a choice with major repercussions for the war effort, and the British were running out of time. We do know that an escaped Penemunda slave, originally from Luxembourg, Leon Henry Roth, had provided details of his work at the facility to the Allies. Others also contributed intelligence, including Polish janitors who created maps and detailed descriptions of the grounds. This was passed to the remnants of the Polish intelligence service, which, in turn, passed the plans on to the British. We also know that around this time, a Catholic priest who led an Austrian resistance cell was able to smuggle a complete schematic of the V2 to the American OSS, the precursor to the CIA. This remarkable individual was named Heinrich Mayer. After the Nazis occupied his country, Mayer rebelled against the orders of his church and made himself into a self-taught master spy. He was the last person in Austria to be executed by the Gestapo before the Nazis retreated. Importantly, Mayer was among the first people to have provided evidence of the Holocaust to the United States. His story deserves to be much more widely known, and we're working to learn more about him for a future episode. One of Winston Churchill's top scientific advisors said that, to the best of his expert knowledge, the Wonder Weapon programs at Penemunde and elsewhere were just a hoax. Another top scientific advisor said that he believed it was real. Now gambling on his best judgment, Churchill made the fateful decision to attack Penemunda. The plan was named after the mythical beast with many heads. They called it Operation Hydra. Now it's August, 1943. The pilots for Operation Hydra were not even informed about what their target would be as they trained. They did practice under extraordinary conditions. Their mission required that they fly under a full moon, without radio navigation, and at an unusually low altitude. They would fly through a blinding smoke screen and then use landmarks on the ground to time the release of their bombs. Operation Hydra also called for misdirection. The night of the raid and many miles away, a squadron of eight Mosquito combat aircraft would fly to Berlin. This would simulate the beginning of an air raid on Berlin and hopefully divert the attention of the Luftwaffe from Operation Hydra's real target. Over the course of two raids, the first on the night of August 17th, nearly 600 bombers assaulted the once-secret facility. Some 75% of the surface buildings were damaged or destroyed. A targeting flare mistakenly landed at the forced labor camp, and with no protections, at least 500 work camp prisoners died in the barrage. The 4,000 German personnel were much better protected once they made it to their air raid shelters. Only 175 of them died. The British, meanwhile, lost 40 bombers and 215 pilots. For a mission this dangerous, to have 93% of the planes survive is nothing short of miraculous. But the British had struck a serious blow. Dr. Walter Thiel and Dr. Eric Walther, two of the project's chief engineers, were among those killed. The consensus of history is that the V-2 program was slowed by this attack by about two months. Furthermore, the strike forced the Nazis to realize that they could no longer control the air over Europe. Anything exposed to the sky was vulnerable to bombing. This included their valuable engineering and manufacturing in Penemunda. They initiated plans to move the production of the retribution weapons to a new location near a town called Nordhausen, The facility, known as Middlework, included factories, assembly lines, liquid oxygen plants, all of it embedded deep inside a mountain connected by massive tunnels. It, too, had its own concentration camp for labor, the infamous Mittelbau-Dora camp. Nordhausen and this massive underground manufacturing facility were kept under wraps by the Soviets for decades until the site was opened to researchers after the fall of the USSR. I've conducted a research visit to both the Middlebauer-Dora Concentration Camp and the underground middlework facility. We'll cover this in a future episode that will close this chapter on this incredible and heartbreaking element of World War II. Now, the delays caused by Operation Hydra might not seem like much, but when the Allies were fighting against the future of warfare, we'll see that this extra time proved to be very meaningful. Now, what made the V-2 such a potent psychological weapon? What made the Nazis double down on their investment and force the British to commit such an overwhelming force to slow it down, even before the V-2 had been used in battle? Its operational range wasn't that much longer than that of the V-1 buzz bomb, and it carried roughly the same payload. But the first reason to fear the V-2 was its speed. The V-1 flying bomb averaged about 340 miles per hour in the air, a British fighter plane called the Hawker Tempest could actually fly faster than it in a dive and intercept it. In mid-air, pilots could use their own wings to gently tip the wing of a V-1 and send it spiraling to the ground before it could reach its target. But these tactics would be useless against the V-2. It flew 10 times as fast and brought with it the first sonic boom ever heard over London. And the V-1 flew only a few thousand feet off the ground, placing it in range of a wide variety of British air defenses. In contrast, the V-2 cruised many miles up in the atmosphere, a precursor to today's ballistic missiles. This made the V-2 virtually undefeatable with the Allies' current anti-air weapons. And along with all this came the knowledge that the technology was only at its beginnings— If the Nazis were able to continue their research, the V-2 would be just the start of their ability to reach and destroy Allied cities without risking a single pilot or aircraft. As I'd mentioned earlier, von Braun had designed a series of aggregate rockets, including the A-6 through A-12. The V-2 was just number four in that series. Each one was more stupendously ambitious than the previous one. They were born of the vision of von Braun's idol and mentor, Hermann Oberth. One of the most visionary concepts was the creation of multi-stage rockets, the idea that multiple rocket stages worked as boosters, lifting the payload higher and further than ever imagined before. Von Braun had even brought Oberth to work with him at Pendamunde, and he was there when the bombs of Operation Hydra struck. To reach across continents, the A-9 and A-10 designs were combined they were given a chilling name that spoke to its intended purpose, the America rocket. The estimate is that, with the A-10 as a booster and A-9 as the final stage, that the America rocket could travel the distance between Berlin and New York City in a mere 40 minutes. At this time, there was no GPS or sophisticated guidance system capable of leading a rocket to its target over such a distance. So the Nazi engineers developed several alternatives— One plan was to have guided the America rocket to New York via a series of radio beacons hosted on German submarines strung across the Atlantic. The final beacon was to be held by a Nazi spy in New York City. But a second and perhaps more plausible plan called for the America rocket to be designed to carry a special extra piece of cargo, a human pilot. In a pressurized cockpit, the pilot would guide the rocket to its target and bail out it with a parachute right before impact. Eerily, the museum at Pennemunde holds the earliest planning documents for the America rocket and includes a map showing the targeting of New York City. I mentioned that the best test pilots in Germany were stationed at Pennemunde. One of them was a national celebrity named Hannah Reich. Reich was both fanatically loyal and fiercely charismatic. She was the very picture of the Aryan ideal with blonde hair and blue eyes. Before the war, she won flying awards all over the world. She was the first woman to pilot a helicopter and even appeared in a German propaganda film about a love triangle between ace flyers. So intense was her commitment to the Nazi cause, she even volunteered to pilot an advanced flying bomb as a suicide weapon if needed. If von Braun had ever completed the America rocket, he would have had people like Hannah Reich willing and able to fly it. Later, Hannah was designated to be Hitler's personal pilot if he ever needed to escape. And as he retreated into his bunker for his final days, he personally handed her a suicide pill so she could die with him. But perhaps her loyalty only went so far. She didn't use it. And von Braun wasn't done. An A-9 rocket stacked on top of an A-10, on top of an A-11, on top of an A-12, was designed to do what humankind had never done in history— orbit the Earth from space. He was testing models for this in wind tunnels even during the final months of the war. But back on Earth, more human-scaled problems were adding up. The V-2 rockets were largely fueled by alcohol, and Germany was losing its largest source of alcohol, the potato crop. Not enough people were left working on farms after years of military conscription. And the orders to von Braun to relocate his program to Nordhausen cost even more precious time. Then, before the V2 could even be launched against the British for the first time, the D-Day invasion put Allied boots back on the ground in Europe. The V2s could only reach London from a small strip of launch sites along the French and Dutch coasts. If Hitler were to lose those positions, his vision of retribution would be over. He ordered the launch of V2s at all possible speed. The first V2 hit London on September 8, 1944. The British, who'd been studying every scrap of intelligence they could find, had not yet developed any effective military defense. Other than taking control of those V-2 launch sites across the channel, the only option to mitigate their impact was a risky one. It was a strategy that could save many lives, but brought with it a crushing ethical dilemma. British intelligence had succeeded in identifying and turning all of the key Nazi spies in London. Then, they strategically used them to feed disinformation back to Germany, who believed that their spies were still loyal. This was known as the double-cross system. A plan was proposed. Use double-cross to report the positions where V2s had struck London, but only those that had struck the far northern edge of the city. If this were believed, the Germans would think they were overshooting their targets, adjust their calculations and, with any luck, start missing central London. But executing this was not without great cost. If the V2s were retargeted, they wouldn't just hit empty ground. While densely populated London would see less damage, the rockets would instead rain down on nearby Kent. No matter what decision was made, civilians would die, the choice was either do nothing or by taking action, put at risk a smaller population of British citizens. Astonishingly, at the time this decision needed to be made, Winston Churchill was away at a conference. It was a long-time civil servant from Scotland by the name of Sir Samuel Finlater Stewart who made the decision on Churchill's behalf. Double cross was put into action. It worked exactly as intended. The V-2 rockets were still experimental and prone to failing, And thanks to the spies of Double Cross, the rockets that did survive the journey became even less accurate. To hide the impact of those that did hit London, the British government put out false stories that the explosions were due to ruptured gas mains. By March of 1945, the last coastal launch site was overrun by the Allies, and no more V1s or V2s would ever hit the British Isles again. The last V2 struck Kent on March 27th, one month later, Adolf Hitler would be dead. The British had survived their first encounter with the future of warfare, and the threat to the Americans faded into the shadows when the America rocket's development was stopped in 1942, only to reemerge later as those technologies would be deployed in ICBMs during the Cold War. Part 5. Ironically, once the Germans stopped using the V2 against civilian populations, the V2 demonstrated that it had significant tactical potential. Still, it was used just once on a military target, a critical bridge over the Rhine River that the Allies had captured and were using to move troops and tanks. The V2, launched all the way from a town in the Netherlands, successfully collapsed the bridge, slowing the Allied advance down. But it was too late to deploy it anywhere else. Germany was falling. In hindsight, we can see that the V-2 rocket was a failure when weighing the costs of the program versus its strategic and tactical benefits. Even using slave labor, the retribution weapon program cost twice as much as the Manhattan Project in America. The Manhattan Project produced the atomic bombs that would be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan, triggering the final surrender of the Japanese military and stopping a land invasion that was projected to kill a million U.S. soldiers and millions more Japanese civilians. But the V1, and especially the V2, had the effect that Hitler desired. They provoked fear in the British population, as it was revealed how cities could be destroyed without a single enemy soldier or pilot occupying the land or sky. But, spurred by that fear, the British and the Allies didn't turn away. Instead, they took the actions that managed to delay Hitler's frightful plans just long enough so that the US and Allies could overwhelm the Nazi military. Of those who fought the Battle of Britain in 1940, Churchill said the following Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. These words also seem appropriate in recognition of the sacrifices of the airmen, soldiers, civilians, and even spies who slowed the V 2 and its sister programs until the entire Nazi war machine could be destroyed. There are further stories to tell about the movement of the program to the Middlework facility in Nordhausen and Germany's increasingly desperate hope for a powerful counterweapon as its resources ran out. The final judgment on the effectiveness of the V1 and V2 can only be made after we've explored Nordhausen. I've gone in person to the remains of that astonishing underground complex, and I've chased strange rumors of advanced projects they pursued there. I'll cover this topic in a future episode. But I want to wind up the story of Penemunde by talking about a man who was never there, and who I haven't mentioned up until now, Robert Goddard. Goddard was born in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1882. A frail child beset by chronic health problems, he often had to skip school but had a voracious interest in science, Devouring texts on his own time, and conducting experiments in his backyard, all with the loving support of his parents. One night when he was 17, he climbed a cherry tree to cut off some dead limbs, and instead found himself gazing at the sky. He had read H.G. Wells' classic The War of the Worlds, and he was suddenly imagining how you could build a device to take humankind to Mars. Every year for the rest of his life... He would privately celebrate the anniversary of that night in the cherry tree, the moment he found his purpose. I'd mentioned that von Braun's rocket engines were liquid-fueled. It was Robert Goddard who had patented the concept of a liquid-fueled rocket in 1914. He even held a patent on the multi-stage rocket which Oberth and von Braun had made famous. American publications had rejected Goddard's earliest articles about rocketry, considering them too fantastical. In 1913, he was struck with severe tuberculosis and had to give up his teaching position at Princeton. Doctors didn't expect him to live. But he never stopped experimenting, and he beat the odds against his disease. He once said in a speech, quote, The dream of yesterday is the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow, end quote. He worked incrementally, one invention, one innovation at a time. If he could make something the world would accept today, it would bring him one step closer to the future, he imagined. He designed rockets that could study atmospheric conditions for meteorology. He created the first experimental ion thruster. A proposal he made to the Army for a tube-based rocket launcher eventually evolved into the bazooka. In 1919, the Smithsonian Institute published his report, A Method for Reaching Extreme Altitudes. He spent most of the 1920s achieving breakthrough after breakthrough in rocketry, while sensational and misleading news coverage had most of the public thinking of him as a crackpot. Eventually, the New York Times published a correction apologizing for its coverage of him, a half a century later, after the Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Rather than critique journalists publicly, I'll simply say that one is better off reading and talking with the doers, thinkers, and creators versus the people who pretend expertise by simply writing about them. Nevertheless, the scientific community knew Goddard was onto something, and he corresponded regularly with the likes of Oberth and von Braun, sharing discoveries until the rise of the Nazis. At that time, Goddard broke off communication with anyone in Germany and worked zealously to prevent his technology and ideas from being stolen by enemy spies. The Guggenheim Foundation provided generous funding to Goddard to relocate his family and his work to the desert, where he could work in greater secrecy and where the climate would better suit his ongoing fight against tuberculosis. Goddard established his facility in Roswell, New Mexico, the future home of UFO lore. The locals there were known for preferring privacy, and if anyone came asking about the location of Goddard's lab, they would be sent in the wrong direction. General Jimmy Doolittle, a legend in military aviation, visited Roswell to consult with Goddard about fuel mixtures and was given an up-close look at what Goddard had done throughout the 30s. Although his rockets never flew as high or as far as the Germans, his goal wasn't to reach the highest altitudes at that time. Instead, he wanted to perfect the design of his engine and guidance systems for the rockets of the future. The visit opened Doolittle's eyes to the true potential of rocketry. He wrote in a memo, quote, Interplanetary transportation is probably a dream of the very distant future, but with the moon only a quarter of a million miles away, who knows, end quote. He couldn't persuade the Army of the potential of Goddard's work, but after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Goddard was compelled to go to work for the Navy in whatever capacity they might need him. At great risk to his health and with his throat so damaged that by now the doctors advised him not even to speak, he relocated to Annapolis, Maryland. The engine he helped design for the Navy ended up powering the Bell X-2 rocket plane, which pushed supersonic flight beyond any of its previous limits. But Goddard never saw that, nor did he see the formation of NASA, which used many of his innovations. Robert Goddard passed away in 1945. Why do I bring up Goddard? It's because of that impression I first got at Penemunda, that this was not just a landmark in scientific progress, but a place haunted by death. When Werner von Braun, Eugen Sanger, and other German scientists were brought to America after World War II, the atrocities of the Nazi regime were well known. How should we feel about the knowledge they developed and the discoveries they made, coming as they did with the support of a genocidal regime and built on the backs of dead slaves? When science allows us to do great things, it's dangerously tempting to sanctify the process that brought it to us. It's a little too easy to forget. I mention Robert Goddard because his life's work, his humane vision, his patriotism, and his astonishing inventions were achieved in more ethical conditions. And refute any idea that the means used at Penemunde were necessary. Goddard's legacy is as important to space travel as anyone's. Add his name and life to your list of future episodes of My Dark Path. If we are to wonder at what humanity has accomplished we must also never forget the tragedy and monstrous evil woven into the story. I think back to what Goddard said about the dream of yesterday being the hope of today and the reality of tomorrow. It's a dark path that runs through the town of Panamunda, where too much thought was given to the future without doing what was right in the present. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. I appreciate that you've chosen to spend your precious time here with us. I'd also be grateful if you'd take a moment and give My Dark Path a five-star rating wherever you're listening. And get ready for the next episode. We're moving from Europe to Asia, from aerospace to, well, ghosts and haunted hotels. It's going to be an amazing episode, and even now, it gives me goosebumps. I hope you'll tune in. Now, we're preparing to launch our subscription program. We're calling it the Explorers Society, hopefully evoking some of the elements of intrigue and discovery of similar societies of the 18th and 19th century. To learn more and to subscribe, visit MyDarkPath.com. Members will get exclusive episodes, books, live online Q&A with our researchers, and so much more. I want to thank Alex Bagasy for contributing research to this episode and to our story editor, Nicholas Thurkettel, for helping me put it all together. If the topic of Pendamundae is of interest to you, you'd probably be interested in my first novel, Seen by Moonlight. You can find it on Amazon and virtually every online bookseller. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me, your host, M.F. Thomas. Until next time, good night. There is no turning back. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Follow the white rabbit. What was the date of the second attack on Penimunda? What was the date of the second attack on Penimunda?